And so it's an absolute privilege and a joy to be joined this morning by Alistair Purbrick from Tub Elk. Good morning to you, Alistair. Uh, good morning to both of you. It's fabulous to have you on the show. Because the wines are so amazing. Alistair, thank you for joining us again. I think I had you on about a year ago. Um, but uh, when, when I heard about this uh, new dedication to James Halliday as the seller, I thought that's a really interesting topic and I'd love to understand, you know, behind what that's about. You know, it was obviously dedication to, well, his dedication to the industry, but can you explain why this significant honour? Uh, absolutely. So... I think everyone recognises that James uh, is uh, one of the three or four sort of, let's call it, elite wine writers in the world um, and sure. being the Australian to, uh, mm -hmm. to uh, achieve that accolade. Uh, uh, but not many people understand or realise some of the other things he's done on behalf and for the benefit of the industry over the last well, 40 years or more. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, he's also served on a number of committees and boards, uh, some of which I've served on, so I've got to know him pretty well. Uh, yeah. He's always uh, had the industry at heart. He's always wanted the best for the industry. Uh, and he was uh, also became, he was a very good friend of grandfather's. That's how I met him yeah. in the first place. Right. Yeah. Uh, then and then uh, he and dad were born in the same year, so they were reasonably good mates. Uh, <laughs> and it's sort of like it was a three-generation uh, <laughs> Um, sort of love fest that was going on. So, uh, so with, when you add all that up, but particularly his contribution to the betterment of our industry, we just thought it was just so appropriate um, that we name a seller after him. And and that's unusual for us. We we've got we're, we're Clark mad at Tabilk. We, we yeah. have sellers, uh, named after uh, long-serving staff. Uh, we've got sellers uh, where we've commemorated anniversaries and we've had prime ministers and state premiers and so on all there doing the honours. Mm. Uh, but we've only strayed where outside of staff or uh, events and dignitaries, we've only twice named uh, sellers after people. Wow. James is now obviously one of those. Mm -hmm. And in 1995, we renamed our museum, the Len Evans Museum. Uh, okay. on behalf of another great industry figure uh, from for the sure. old days. Yeah. <laughs> well, pretty... you're, you're certainly the place to go for all these people. I mean, you've, you've, you've got a lineup of, of famous Australians there. and uh, But it is a lovely story. And I want to thank you for, uh, for telling us from, from your mouth. So can you give us a little bit of an update on where Tarbilk is? I mean, you're, your brand is definitely one of the most well-known brands, not just for your Marsan, um, in Australia. So um, what's what's the last year been like? What's the vintage? What are we expecting this year? And maybe specifically, um, what's the Marsan going to be like this year? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, the Marsan out of 2023 is, is going to be very good, but yeah. sadly... There's not going to be a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. What sort uh, of quantities yeah. were you able to get? Well, uh, we, we've got about a third uh, wow. of the production that we had wow. hoped, uh, and we we're also down about twenty percent in twenty twenty two. So, so right. uh, I never thought I'd I'd be short of Marsan, uh, but uh, but we are, and that right. all goes back out of twenty twenty three to the the awful floods that oh, we yeah. had back in mid October. Uh, we uh, our property here is about three thousand acres. Half mm -hmm. of it was one to two meters underwater, uh, and that included all of our old vine stocks, so including the eighteen sixty vine Shiraz and um, an yeah. old Cabernet block, nineteen forties, nineteen thirties, forties Shiraz blocks. Uh, so that was potentially devastating. But luckily, the floods got away quite quickly, 
Uh, and so the, the vines didn't actually defoliate. Um, so they, uh, we had some rain um, after the floods uh, went and, and that washed the mud off the leaves uh, and then off they went again. But it was right in the middle of flowering and set, which means yeah. that although the vines look fantastic right now, if you drove mm. onto the property, you'd say, what's all the fuss about? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but there was just very little fruit from that end. Now we have got other vineyards uh, at the top end of the property, which can't be flooded. And that's where we've um, you know, we've harvested a reasonable crop. But most of our Marsan was at the bottom end of the property where right. it was badly flooded. Right. And some of your neighbours too, the Mitchelton had some issues too. They had a flooding of the, the art gallery and stuff, didn't they, Alistair? Yeah, they did. They did. Uh, and look, no one was exempted. Uh, mm. If you were on the Golden River, you, you, were, you were badly flooded. Mitchelton were... Uh, unfortunately, one of the walls gave way in an underground cellar yeah. and uh, that just allowed all the water in. But they had removed almost all, not all, but almost all of the indigenous art. And some oh, right. of those works are very, very valuable. You know, they're, they're worth a quarter of a million dollars or more. Uh, so they got all the, all the expensive works out. Uh, but they still had barrels floating around and they had stock floating around. You know? So it was it was a disaster, yeah. whichever way you look at it. It's been tough. So, and it's been a big reduction, probably, what, the last four vintages? You've had quite small vintages in the last four, haven't you? So we're, we're praying for a nice warm vintage next year, aren't we? Yeah, well, we're praying for a vintage where, where Mother Nature says, uh, I think I've, I've, I've hit these guys enough over yeah. the last number of years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Send, send them somewhere else. Send them over somewhere else. <laughs> so, um, so Alistair, what were some of the varietals that uh, uh, quantities uh, were, were much much better that weren't so affected? Well, it's it depended whether it was on the high country or the low country. That was the bottom line. So it was really under Marsan because it's dominantly on the lower. Okay. Lower okay. Good. So okay. Well, that's country where we've got a problem. Uh, most, sure. most we've got with the other reds and the other white varieties. Uh, you know, we're in pretty good shape, so it's not okay. the end of the world. Well, that's, good. that's not too bad. That's not too bad. I would love to have a chat to you about. So basically, you produce probably all of my favourite varietals: Marsan, Roussan, Bionier. I know Richard's just sitting here smiling because he knows I'm such a fan of these bone varietals. I love um, it. So they're oh, just so good. So can you tell us a bit more because you're so well known for Marsan, but tell us more about the the Roussan and the Viognier and even the Vidello. So I haven't tried your Vidello. Can you give us a bit of an overview of those? Okay. Uh, well, we've we've had a long running love affair with Rhone varieties mm -hmm. uh, since the 1860s. So you know, for a very very long time. Uh, and the winemaker manager of the day decided that Nagambi, or where we are, had a very similar climate um, to the Rhone and particularly Hermitage. And so that's why some of those varieties were, were planted. Dominantly, it was Marsan and Shiraz back in those days. Uh, then Phylloxera struck uh, in the late 1800s. That wiped out uh, uh, most of the vineyards. In fact, the only vineyard we've got left that is pre-Phylloxera is that original 1860 uh, planted right. block. Uh, which which survived because it's on the very sandy soil and its uh, roots uh, are close to uh, water, um, so they were able to to get through. Uh, but only 30 acres of 350 acres survived, and it was only the 30 acres that was on that sandy soil. Uh, so uh, when um, my great grandfather Reginald uh, purchased the property in 1925, he came out and because he was in England at the time, so he purchased it sight unseen. Uh, and he came out with his eldest son, Eric, my grandfather, 
who was doing law at Cambridge University then, uh, yeah. and they inspected what they'd purchased. And uh, grandfather fell in love with the property. Uh, great grandfather was actually going to cut it up into 100 acre dairy blocks and make it oh. killing, you know. So it's a, a, not, <laughs> God, he didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so grandfather then spent the next number of years convincing his dad not to sell it, to allow mm. it, you know, to, to run it as a uh, operating winery, uh, which obviously great grandfather relented in the end, but it came with one important proviso for grandfather, which was, okay, if you are that keen that we keep this and operate it, I want you to go out to Australia and manage it. Uh, so no law career for you in London. It was going to be a new winemaking career in Australia. So grandfather uh, came out in 1931, but he made a couple of decisions before that, which uh, have were significant. Uh, and we don't know why he did it, but with the benefit of hindsight, it was inspired. He planted Marsan or replanted Marsan. And so our oldest block, which dates back to 1927, uh, was due to his foresight. Right. Who would have who would have planted Marsan back in the nineteen twenties? Uh, unbelievable, uh, yeah. When when table wine was hardly drunk in Australia. Obviously, a very clever so, man who's doing law at uh, uh, Cambridge. Absolutely, uh, ahead of his time. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So on, on the nineteen twenty seven, as a, probably your most famous Marsan, and still some of the best value wine I think you could possibly ever get, uh, was the last vintage you made. That wouldn't have been 2017. You would have had a vintage since then, right? We the current release is the 17. It is uh, and 17. we usually release those wines when they're about six, seven years old and they've won a number of trophies and gold medals and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so that that's that's the current vintage. Yep. Uh and interestingly, uh grandfather continued his love affair with the Rhone varieties and particularly Marsan and Shiraz and kept planting. So uh, so we've now got the largest single holding of Marsan in the world. Uh, just, wow. Which just shows you how little there is planted, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's quite amazing, considering you look at Rhone and how large that wine region is, yeah. that for you to actually have that. How many hectares, uh, yes, what's, what's the acreage that you have? Uh, we've, we've got well, acreage, just about 100 acres, 40 hectares of Marsan. Okay. Okay. So, so, so that, that works really well for us. Mm -hmm. uh, then, then I decided to plant uh, in the late 1980s, uh, Viognier and Roussan. Uh, so that sort of completed the Rhone story for the whites. Yes. And in more recent times, we've planted Grenache and Mouvedre as well. So, yes. so uh, look, I, I don't know, Jill, whether, whether you've tried our three-way blend, but uh, we've no. got a, okay, well, we've got a GSM now. Uh, and uh, that's that's really interesting, Grenache, Shiraz, Mouvedre. And we also do a Roussan, Marsan, Viognier. Which is a pretty interesting blend. I've had my eye on that, and I must. Richard, have you tried those? I, I have, you, yeah, you yeah, I have. have. And yeah. you know, uh, uh, the thing I guess about uh, Tabilka is that you do make quite a lot of different skiers, don't you, Alistair? There's like a, there's, yeah. I don't know, eighty to hundred different wines. Would it, would that be fair to say? Uh, well, eighty or eighty to hundred might be a bit of an exaggeration, but right. certainly yeah. there's a, there's about forty or fifty varieties out there. So yeah. it's a it's a it's a bit like a fruit salad that we've got a lot oh, of uh, different varieties. Yeah, I but do. The, the reason the reason, Rich, that we have uh, that we have so many is number one, uh, we like to trial new yeah. varieties and just see whether it works in our part of the world, and number two, we've got a very vibrant wine club. And so we yeah. want to offer a diversity uh, of wine yeah. varieties and styles just to just because we don't have the luxury of the professional 
D2C uh, operations, the e-tailers, where they can choose wines from anywhere around the world, yeah. anywhere around Australia, and then make up their offers accordingly. We're bound to estate. So it's all about estate. And I'd say, and you say vibrant, and I would say loyal. So the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the guy that I was telling you about, Andrew Bain, before, who, who works in Los Angeles now, he still buys wine from Tabil and gets them shipped over. So that's, that's 10 years of loyalty right there from that trip. So... You know, uh, I, I don't think you're in any danger in terms of that. But I like the diversity because you've got Nero Avila, You've got all sorts of stuff planted there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So we've got a, a good sprinkling of Spanish, Italian, uh, and a, a lot of other lesser-known French uh, varietals. So, uh, we've also got some Malbec, which obviously is in Bordeaux, but uh, Argentina, a big deal of that now, of course. Yeah, it's kind of uh, yeah, trending, so, yeah, isn't we've it? We've got a lot of different varieties. Mm. Yeah. No, you can you can get get down to the cellar door and have a look at them all too, because that's always been one of my favourite things. The sort of, oh, I'd say, the rusticity of the cellar door, uh, which I love. I love. I don't want a flash cellar door. I just want something that feels nice. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's really really heartening to hear you say that because uh, we've felt for a long time that that trying to keep to build as original as possible, so yep. as authentic as possible. Uh, in other words, uh, to, to maintain uh, the structures in a derelict state. <laughs> yeah. But at least you know it's 99.9% original. And so what we try and offer visitors to the winery is that they've stepped back in time, mm. you know, to the 1860s, the 1870s. You know, we could we could uh, tart it up if that's the right word. You know, no. we could lawn everything, we could re-roof it, we could, you know, we could make it look like a fully renovated, fantastic but old uh, winery. But we think it'd lose some of its... It's, its charm. Totally. It's, yes. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Leave it the yeah, way uh, it is. I love it. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, if it's, if it's not, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix that sort of style. I mean, it's such a magnificent tower and, the, and its structure and everything is built so well. So, yeah, you wouldn't touch it unless you absolutely had to. I mean, I, I mean, Richo's obviously got his own um, gorgeous story of being there. Last night I was talking to my mother-in-law and she loves Tarbilk and she's been there a couple of times. And um, just whenever, whenever people speak about their experience there, it's always a very very enlightened like they're very vibrant um a story it's not just oh it was great cellar doors awesome blah 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 there's something a little bit of a magical feel that comes over how they're talking about it and i think that comes back to that original charm and the characteristic of that building and apart from take away the magnificence of all the wines that they're trying it's actually just the feel they have and you've created that or you've preserved that and that's that's so important yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree, and we also allow people pretty free reign to mm. to walk around, uh, do yeah. self guided tours if they don't want to. Just wine taste all uh, afternoon. We've got the museum now. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, we've got the museum available as well. But the but the thing uh, that is really uh, engaging people at the moment um, is our ecotourism arm. You know, where people can now walk five or six kilometres around the wetlands yeah. uh, that we've, we've restored. Uh, we've got a boat, a uh, 30-seater boat, where you can cruise for an hour uh, over and around the wetlands as well. Um, and yeah. that's really resonating with people. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. So you're listening to 96.5 Inner FM. And it's the Wine Show Australia. Thank you to everyone for joining us on a Sunday morning. And we are joined at the moment by Alistair Perbrick uh, from Shadow Tabilk or Tabilk. 
uh, here in Victoria. Now, we've had a couple of messages come through. So firstly, thank you for sending your texts through. This is from Kim. says, good morning, Richo, Jill and uh, Alistair. Uh, how does Alistair see the Cabernet appealing to the younger generation? There's a tough question for you on a Sunday morning, Alistair. How's Cabernet going for you? Uh, well, uh, appealing to the younger generation. Uh, <laughs> whichever variety, whether it's red or white, that that you try, yeah. it's going to be uh, uh, what you're going to like is going to be where your palate has developed to. Yes. So... So if uh, you're a younger, and I'm not sure what Tim's referring to as younger, you know, I, I see a 50-year-old as younger, but anyway, <laughs> let's, let's assume it's 20 to 30-year-old, uh, then uh, I don't think Cabernet Sauvignon for either the guys or the girls is probably going to be that attractive. They're a bit too early in their wine journey, if you like. Mm. Um, you know, maybe if they're wanting to get into reds, uh, and particularly for the girls, I'd be punting on Pinot Noir. For instance, yeah, um, yeah. As, a, as a good entry, uh, uh, and it's you know good good fruit definition and so on. And it's the same with the white wines. You know, I think the younger female consumers are looking for a lot of fruit fruit forward wines. Um, the younger guys are probably not even there yet for the most part. <laughs> Yes. Still drinking yes. beer. Still, still drinking beer. Alcohol. So also, um, Christopher's also written in. He's asking about the the 1860 vine Shiraz. So can you just tell us a little bit about that vineyard? And you said it was the only one that sort of survived the phylloxera. But how remarkable is it, firstly, to have a family-owned winery that's got a vineyard still from 1860? You've got bests, of course, 1866. But you know, tell us a bit about the vineyard and the wine and how it ages and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, it's it's only about 1.5 hectares, so it's very very small, small acreage. Uh, and uh, grandfather decided, and we've continued that tradition, that he wouldn't replace any vines that died, uh, whereas normal viticultural practice is a vine dies in a vineyard and you replace it. So you end up with a you know a dominant uh, amount of the vines that are of an age, and then you've got younger vines. Uh, dotted through. So of that 1.5 hectares, it's only about 60% planted, but it is absolutely 100% authentic 1860 mm. Shiraz. Yeah. So, uh, so the Shiraz's history is that it, it was uh, exported out uh, at, at that time from Hermitage. So it's a Hermitage clone. Right. Uh, it's it's a bit different to the other Shiraz clones that we have on the property in that uh, the berries are quite small uh, and the bunches are larger than the other Shiraz clones. Uh, and the smaller berries really work in its favour because it increases the flavour intensity because all the flavour comes from the skin. So if you've got more skin ratio to juice, you're going to get more fruit intensity. Mm. So it's a bit like Cabernet Sauvignon that we were talking about <laughs> before. Yeah. So... So, uh, so it works really well, very low yielding. Um, and the wines that result you would expect because of all those factors uh, would be very masculine, very rich style, uh, but it's not. Uh, it naturally makes an incredibly elegant style uh, and, uh, but very high natural acidity. Mm. And it's a wine that can be cellared for a very long time if people are patient enough. Yeah. Uh, we, we uh, recently had a, um, a one of the, the first vintage, the 1979 was the first vintage, my first vintage at Tobilk, the first vintage we kept that fruit separate and labelled it as 1860. Yeah, right. In mm -hmm. And uh, I tried that uh, not so long ago uh, and it was just looking fresh 
Um, it's, it's, you know, it got, it's, it's probably still 20, 20 years or more away from its best. Wow. Um, so, mm. uh, so it's, it's really, um, it, it's, it's really developed a cult following, if you like, uh, because there's so little of it. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, long may it continue. Um, long may the vines live. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, that's actually, it's, it's quite an interesting one when, you know, people have wines that have got already some beautiful, beautiful age on them. You know, they can still be down for another 20, 30 years. How are people housing them these days? Like, do you often have people come to your cellar or talk to you or ask you for advice on the best way to sell her when they say, okay, I don't, I don't have a huge basement that I can turn into a cellar, but I have a special room in my house, blah, blah, blah. If there's a relative consistency of temperature, what sort of advice do you give to someone who does want to invest in some good wines but just doesn't have that space to properly sell them? Uh, yeah, so so if you don't have a cellar, uh, which means that you don't have to manipulate temperatures and humidity yeah. uh, at all, um, then uh, you can purchase wine cabinets now where you can store the wines and replicate the sort of cellar type conditions. Uh, so if you're going to put a room aside, then that's obviously the way I would advise that, that yeah. they go. And yes, we do get people inquiring reasonably regularly about how they should set up their cellar to ensure that the wines are going to be able to fulfill their potential in other words be stored perfectly mm -hmm. um, so so that's where most people would start would be with those um, special refrigerated wine cabinets uh, and uh, and then it's a matter of patience but most people though don't have a lot of patience. No. And, <laughs> 20 30 and, years and we, time, well, we set up for our wine club members back in 1995 a, a museum cellaring program, museum wine cellaring program, and we re-release wines now on a regular basis mm. that can go back to the early 90s, uh, where you know there might be a, a four-decade four six-pack of Cabernet Sauvignon or Shiraz, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, and people really get on board that as far as our wine club members are concerned. Because it was working so well with our wine club members, we thought, well, why not build up those stocks and release it to on-premise initially and then to the independent retail trade. So we've been doing that for probably 12 or 15 years now. And that really resonates, uh, particularly with on-premise. Restaurants love having, you know, just a few older wines uh, and not many people are releasing older wines. Um, and uh, they feel it just gives an angel dust effect, if you like, by having a few mm -hmm. old wines for sale. And yeah. uh, remarkably, doesn't matter what price they put on them, they do sell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we've got, yeah, people pay for age. We've got 2016 Marsan, 2015 Cabernet, 2015 Shiraz at uh, Uncle Dan's at the moment, which are all great. I had a 2015 Shiraz the other day and... Look, four hours in the decanter, and I was like, "Geez, I wish I'd stuck this away for another ten years." So even a, oh. even, your, even your sort of entry level stuff, I think, ages um, very well. Let's just put it in context, though. Eighteen sixty was the year that Burke and Wills set out on their expedition, and <laughs> you've got a wow. vineyard. You've got a vineyard from that year, <laughs> and you're still making wine from it. But it's interesting, though. <laughs> so nineteen seventy nine was the first time that it was separately uh, vinified. Other than that, it would just go into your sort of your general Shiraz, or what was happening before that. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So grandfather uh, had uh, back before we released the 1860 vines as, as a single vineyard wine, there was only one super premium or flagship wine that grandfather had, which 
in February this year, we just celebrated the 75th anniversary of that lineage or that range. Uh, so the first wine that he released was just post Second, Second World War, the 1948 Bin 11 Shiraz. Right. So, uh, so uh, the, 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 that Shiraz most likely had, not every year, but the, the Bin wines would have some of the 1860 vine Shiraz in it. Right. Uh, we do know that the 1971 Bin 57 Shiraz is 100% 1860 vine Shiraz. Right. So we, we it's, it's not labelled as such, but, yeah. <laughs> but at least we know uh, we've got an older wine there. And, and I've got to say that wine also uh, is ageing beautifully and is still not at its best. Um, what's 71? That's 50, over 50 years old, isn't it? So, yeah, still going along. Yeah, it's great. It's still cracking. Yeah, it's such a such a fabulous legacy, uh, and we're just so happy it's still in family hands. And thank you so much for joining us on a yeah. Sunday morning, Alistair Perbrick from Tubilk. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. No, it's fantastic. Thank you. That's wonderful, wonderful stuff.